Welcome to another episode of Exploring Art Podcast, a Florida International University student podcast for the creative curious. We are very pleased to have Ray Elman with us today, as well as our student panelists, Amy, Cece, and myself, Natalie. Welcome to Exploring Art. So um, we're going to start at the beginning of your journey. So you attended the University of Pennsylvania as an undergraduate and later finished your graduate studies at New York University. Did you decide right after NYU you were going to move away to dedicate yourself to art? And what did the process look like? So um, I don't know if it's in my in my uh, bio on my artist website, but I have two degrees from the Wharton School, which is the business school at the University of Pennsylvania. Donald Trump got his degree. And, uh, but at the same time, one of the great things about the Wharton School when I was there, insisted that you um, take electives in the liberal arts school. So I, I took German literature and translation, Russian history, uh, psychology, all kinds of courses. And the, um, uh, I had been, uh, I was aware that I had talent as an artist my whole life, um, but I sort of subjugated that to uh, thinking about how I would make money <laughs> later in life. And so I didn't just jump right into it. Uh, but then I started taking all the studio art courses I could take at Penn, and that was um, both undergraduate and in graduate school because I have two degrees from there. And then I, I left, um, I, I moved from Philadelphia to New York, and I was working uh, for a consulting firm on Wall Street, and I started to feel like there was a big hole in my life. So I went and um, enrolled in NYU graduate school at night, and uh, that's when I connected with a painter uh, teacher named Knox Martin, whose work is actually behind me on the wall there. And he became my mentor. He's 97 years old now, but he was, he's uh, an amazing artist and an amazing character, very picaresque. And he sort of pushed the buttons in me that gave me confidence in being an artist and in 1970, I moved from New York City to Provincetown, which I didn't even know was an art colony on the tip of Cape Cod. Turns out it's maybe the most important art colony in the United States history, uh, where major uh, painters and writers, prize winners and U.S. poet laureates have called it home, as well as biggest names in art. And I showed up there as a 25 year old I didn't know a single person and uh, welcoming community and I actually showing up in September meant that I was going to spend the off season there and so back in those days I'm house on a hundred foot bluff overlooking the bay where I could sit in the living room and watch the sun sink into the sea for $75 a month and um, and it, things were so cheap then in those days that I could practically live on air. I almost didn't have to earn a living and I could devote myself to art. And so in the beginning, all I did was paint. And uh, in those days I was really into uh, Zen and Buddhism. And so I, um, uh, I meditated, I painted, I went for walks with my dog and eventually I got to know everybody in town. 
Uh, one of the differences between Miami and Provincetown is that if you went to an art opening, all the writers would be there. If you went to a poetry reading, all the artists would be there. So there was this real intermixing, and especially uh, most of the galleries in Provincetown opened on Friday night, and people would just walk down the main drag, which is called Commercial Street, and they'd hop from gallery to gallery, uh, or for, and, and plus there's some museums there. And, and so it, it was kind of one long uh, summertime party there. It was different in the winter. The winters are pretty bleak, and the, uh, but I loved it. I, uh, the first winter I was there living in that house overlooking the bay, um, it snowed. And the, it, the snow, they were snow, the ground was covered with snow the entire winter. And I thought, oh, okay, well, this is the way it is. I'm up north now. And it turned out it was the only winter that ever happened. And it was so cold that the bay froze over. And when the tides changed, you'd get these gigantic, like eight foot high ice flows that would come onto the sand and, 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 and so, or, or even higher than eight feet now that I think about it. But, uh, but that was the only winter that ever happened. Um, but, but, uh, so the bar wasn't a great place to necessarily meet people, even though everybody went, meet people who would advance my art career, even though everybody went there. But, but the community itself was so friendly and so welcoming. And um, it wasn't the usual kind of art politics about who got into what galleries. So in the beginning of your time in Provincetown, you did a lot of uh, portraits. Actually, so, so let, me, let me describe my career. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, the guy behind me was the big influence on my artwork. And so in the beginning, I did, uh, my, my work was abstract from uh, the time I was in art school until 1989 when my son was born. and. So I did a lot of uh, very large scale, like five by six foot abstract paintings. A lot of them wound up in the, uh, there's something called the Arts and Embassies program. So my work was hung in embassies around the world. Um, and I had museum shows and gallery shows. And uh, I um, had a, uh, uh, my, my, my mentor, Knox Martin, introduced me to his print publisher. This is a print behind me. And I started doing prints. I did a lot of prints in the 70s and 80s. And they were kind of loosely based on, in the beginning, on, um, on calligraphy and guild symbols from uh, medieval guild symbols and monarchy symbols. And I sort of um, kind of reconstructed them in different kinds of ways. I can... I'll send you guys um, some images so you'll see what they're like. But if you just Google my name, Ray Elman, you're, you're more likely to see the abstract work than the portraits. And then in 1989, uh, when my wife was pregnant, I did a five by six foot portrait of her showing her layoff. And, um, and I used this, a lot of the same techniques that I'd used in my abstract work. Because a lot of my abstract work had collage elements in it. And I used the same techniques to create these um, large-scale portraits that uh, start off as photographs that I print on, say, 40 pieces of archival paper or an adhere to a canvas. And then I paint on the top of that with oil paint. And so I kind of invented this, this technique 
And from 19, and after I'd done some uh, portraits of my wife and my newborn child, I decided I really liked it. I decided to, uh, based on a, a book I'd read during my Zen days called uh, Meetings with Remarkable Men by George Gurdjieff, I decided to do something autobiographical that was a series of portraits of the people I had met on the Outer Cape Cod art, in the art, Outer Cape Cod art colony. And it was what they did when they weren't working. So it was documenting the fabric of life in the art colony. So people on their boats, people beachcombing, um, people playing tennis, people doing a variety of things. And so I've done over 400 portraits in this series. Um, and I never dreamed that I'd do it for the rest of my life. But I was so energized by the process and I so, so liked it that I've just been doing it ever since um and uh, four of the portraits are in the smithsonian national portrait gallery and have been exhibited there and um and that's what i'm doing now when i moved to miami um i decided well i might as well start documenting my life in miami so the first person i decided to do a portrait of was richard blanco do you know who he is so Richard Blanco was the, the fifth poet laureate, I mean, I'm sorry, the fifth um, presidential inaugural poet in American history. So he read a poem at Obama's first inauguration. And he's an openly gay Cuban-American poet. And I thought, well, um, uh, he's going to be a really interesting guy. And, and he's, he's, a, he's a really handsome guy, too. So we met at La Carreta if you know that place on in uh, in little havana yeah on okay, okay, um, and and i did a portrait of him um a 40 by 60 inch portrait of him which became the cover of the second edition of the magazine that i'm producing now in speecho and but it was through richard i i told him i was thinking of starting uh, an arts magazine in miami and he said oh you should talk to my friend john bailey at fiu and it turns out, by the way, that uh, Richard had been a um, uh, civil engineer, and he got the urge to follow his artistic expressions. And he went to the creative writing program at FIU, and, and where he encountered Campbell McGrath, and that's what got him to become a poet. He's a fantastic poet. And so he collaborates with this guy, John Bailey, where they mix poetry and art. Um, and in the course of one thing leading to another, I wound up in the um, office of Schreiner, who's the dean of the College of uh, Communication, Architecture, plus the Arts. And when I told him I was thinking about starting an art magazine in Miami, he said, this is exactly what I want to do. And uh, you don't have to make it a commercial magazine. You don't have to sell ads. We'll sponsor you. FIU will sponsor you. And um, so that was the path of, uh, I don't know, are you going to, I don't want to jump ahead of your questions, but are you going to ask me about the, about the magazines? Yes. <laughs> so um, I was on the uh, board of trustees of the Provincetown Art Museum. And I was at a meeting and for the millionth time, somebody was complaining about the arts coverage in the local paper. Provincetown, by the way, in the wintertime has only 3,000 people. 
and the summertime it sort of swells to 40,000. So it's not, it's never a huge place. And they were, anyway, they were complaining about the coverage of, of, of the arts in the local, local tabloid, which was a weekly. And so I said, well, why don't we start our own magazine and we can bring great expertise to it. We'll get all the galleries to take ads in it. And, um, and we'll start our own magazine. Everybody said, wow, what a great idea. Let's do it. Let's start a committee. And so we got a committee together. And as soon as we started to do this by committee, I knew it was doomed because everybody had a different idea. Some people thought, oh, well, we shouldn't take ads and how we're going to pay for it. And, you know, so, so this uh, kind of went off my radar screen. A friend of mine came back after spending the winter in New York and he said, I hear you want to start an art magazine. Why don't we do it together? And I said, sure, sounds great. So we didn't know anything about publishing. And I always say we didn't know Pika from Pike's Peak, uh, but we did know the community. And so in the very first issue, which was a tabloid, um, we had a U.S. poet laureate writing a story about his next door neighbor who was head of the art department at Yale. Uh, I don't know if you guys know who Franz Klein was, but he was a major abstract expressionist. And we had one of his best friends writing a story about him. So, um, so right, right from the get-go, we had great quantity and uh, quality. And the, um, the magazine is still being published 35 years later. We started in 1985, and it grew into a, a perfect bound magazine. Um, I could show you one of the covers, but if you Google Provincetown Arts, you'll, you'll see it. I think it's, the website is provincetownarts.org. And, um, and it's been a very successful magazine. And along the way, I started another magazine, too. I'm, I'm from Cincinnati, and I got the idea that we could, from Provincetown Arts, the high-quality core content, and do art magazines around the country in different cities, supplementing it with local, uh, local writers. Um, so I started Provincetown, uh, uh, Cincinnati Arts in 1988. And then my son was born in 1989. I thought, eh, I got too many balls in there. So I, I, I got out of the magazine business, stayed on the board, uh, kept my hand in, but I did other things. Um, and along the way, by the way, we, I used uh, digital page layout for the first time in 1988. So I was an early pioneer in digital communication and got involved with creating online learning and doing all kinds of online communications for many huge organizations, including Microsoft, Cisco, ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, NASA, uh, etc. So um, when I moved to Miami, as I explained before, and I got the idea about, uh, I, I looked around, I said, I've never seen a community explode like this in all the arts. Everything's happening so quickly that kind of got uh, the booster rocket was Art Basel. And I thought the one thing that's really missing here is a high quality arts publication. And so I started talking to the museum directors. I talked to Mitch Kaplan of Books and Books, who's also the founder of the Miami Book Fair. I talked to the director of the Miami Film Festival and got their ideas on what they would want from an art magazine. And as I told the story before, through Richard Blanco, I serendipitously met the dean of Carta, who said, 
this is already in my strategic plan through 2020. It's exactly what I want to do. And that's how InSpeecho got launched. But there's a funny story behind the name. So because I'd started Provincetown Arts and Cincinnati Arts, I wanted to call this Miami Arts. And so uh, we had to have the um, chief legal counsel of FIU do a name search to make sure it was okay. And she said, you can't call it that. And we said, why? Why not? And she said, well, there's Miami Art Fair, Miami Art Guide. And I said, so what? There's New York Times, New York Magazine, The New Yorker. You know, but she wouldn't budge. So I was being a wise ass. And I thought, okay, I'm in academia now. So let me find a Latin word. And so I did some research on uh, a Latin word that meant inspect, examine, review. And the word in speecho popped up. Um, so we did all the logo development and we we're all ready to go. And all of a sudden I had in speecho up on my screen and I see a little audio icon next to it. And I clicked on the audio icon and a woman says in speecho. We all thought it was in specio because that's the way it would be in Spanish or in, or in Italian. And so all of a sudden we thought, Oh God, we're going to name this magazine. We're going to give this magazine a name that nobody knows how to pronounce. You know, this is the worst of all worlds. And uh, so, so far we've stuck with it. Uh, I actually have a, an idea for a, uh, an advertisement campaign to change the name to, um, I, I have a URL registered of inside Miami arts and, and w which the chief counsel accepted. Uh, and I also have uh, the, uh, would use the acronym IMA. So instead, inside Miami Arts, I am a uh, dancer, I am a collector, oh, I am a writer. That's super interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's something recently that you're working on. But um, so now that we are like in the pandemic, you personally, uh, aside from uh, aside from you being an artist and you know in the journaling world and all that, um, you personally, what you know, what has been the hardest part for nag navigating life and work and you know just the whole you know difference of of how things are done. How has that how has that affected you in your life? So um, I consider myself to be very healthy, meaning that I engage in various sports and stuff, but I had a quadruple bypass in 2008. So I have no idea how much my immune system is compromised. Uh, I haven't been sick since we moved to Miami year round in 2012. I haven't been sick a, a nanosecond, but I don't want to test it. So that's, that's one aspect of how, and my wife. Knock on that uh, wood desk behind you. <laughs> I will. Uh, so, so uh, which was built by my wife, by the way. Wow. But my wife also is a cancer survivor. Uh, she had cancer in 2011. So, uh, and she, you know, she runs every day and does yoga all over the place. And, and uh, so we're both very healthy, but we don't want to uh, risk exposing ourselves. So, um, so basically we stay home all the time, except for going food shopping. Uh, we've, we haven't been face to face with any, anybody's March 11th, meaning, you know, socializing with friends. Um, 
I have a studio that's out, uh, this big studio out by the juncture of uh, I-95 and, and 826. And uh, so I can always go there and work. There's nobody else around. And um, so it's not affecting me in terms of getting my work done. Actually, one direct uh, way it affected me, um, there's something called Oolite Arts. Do you guys know what that is? It's, it's, um, it, it used to be called the um, Art Center of South Florida uh, on Lincoln Road. And uh, they sold one of their buildings for like $100 million, $88 million. So they have a huge endowment. And uh, it's being run now by a guy named Dennis Scholl, who's a prominent art collector, but he was also in charge of the arts uh, grants from the Knight Foundation. And so he's doing a great job there. And one of the first thing he did was start something called Ellie Awards, which is named after the original founder of the Art Center South Florida, whose name's Ellie. Uh, so I received one of those in 2018 to um, create portraits, large-scale portraits, of people who were either uh, performers at or patrons of the Hampton House. Do you guys know what the Hampton House is? Yes, that's probably one of my favorite projects that you've done, actually. <laughs> we're going to touch on that, too. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Me, too. So, so I was supposed to, uh, and I donated the portraits to the Hampton House, so we were supposed to have an exhibition of them that FIU was going to sponsor the ex exhibition, pay for all, all the you know, refreshments and band or whatever we have there. And, and uh, that was supposed to be in May. And of course, we canceled it because of the pandemic. So um, none of the, uh, from the standpoint of any exhibitions I might have, you know, there's nothing happening until, until this thing's over. Um, and I don't, I'm represented by galleries, but I don't really need to necessarily have them show my work because I can show my work on my, on my website. So. And what about like you as an artist, you making artwork, making new projects? Have you, has anything new come up since the pandemic started? Has it inspired anything? Maybe a new like project? So, so I, I won't blame this on the pandemic, but the, the, I, I, can, I see myself doing the ports for the rest of my life because I really enjoy them and I think they're an important documentation. So uh, the ones I did in Providence are an important documentation of life in, a, in, in an art colony from an insider's point of view. And one of the things that happened was when Robert Motherwell died, for example, I realized... I better start with the old people first because they're not going to be around. And so I'm kind of working my way down the, uh, the age scale. Um, I've got, wouldn't surprise me if I've got uh, photographs of a hundred people that I've, that I'm ready to do portraits on that are you know, just waiting for me to find the time to do it out in the studio. So, so your books for the next few years, <laughs> yeah. safe to say. <laughs> I mean, I, I could work every day, uh, you know, for five years and, and not catch up. Uh, and at the same time, I'm continually adding to that. And in fact, I'm doing portraits of the people that I'm interviewing for in Speecho. And some of them wind up on the cover of the magazine. So 
an example of that is Richard Blanco. He's on the cover of the second magazine. Uh, if you want to see the e-magazine, by the way, which is the best way to see in Speecho, um, go, if you got an iPhone, it's, it's only for uh, iPads and iPhones. Go, go to the app store, search for in Speecho, install the app, everything's free, and there's 11 magazines that we've created so far. Um, so I mean, some of those portraits of, of people that are, are on the um, magazine covers, but also I'm going to make large-scale portraits of them and see if the uh, National Portrait Gallery is interested in it because, as I said, they're U.S. Poet Laureates and they're uh, Pulitzer Prize winners. And so when people have a certain level of fame, the, uh, the, um, US, the National Portrait Gallery is interested. Just an aside for that, by the way, and I'll get back to your question. <laughs> aside for that is I did it. Uh, I got early on, I got involved in the campaign for Deval Patrick to become governor of Massachusetts. And I don't know if you're familiar with Deval Patrick, but he's got an amazing story. A friend of mine called me from New York and said that Deval Patrick's going to run for governor of Massachusetts. I said, who's that? I never heard of him. He said, I want you to do a fundraiser for him on Cape Cod and don't worry, you'll love him. And so I, 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 I Googled him and saw him giving a speech. I thought, oh my God, this guy has got it. You know, he was, Obama was still, might've been unknown, but he's at least as good as Obama as a speech maker and they're, they're friends. Um, so we did the fundraiser and I, I, I took a, um, some pictures of him. He came into my house and I created a portrait. Um, and I asked the uh, National Portrait Gallery if they're interested. And they said, well, he hasn't accomplished enough yet even though he became governor, the first black governor of Massachusetts and one of the first black governors in the United States. But that wasn't enough for the National Portrait Gallery. So, uh, so they didn't want that. But anyway, I've got a lot of very interesting people on tap to do portraits of. The other thing that I'm doing, um, which is not so much spawned by the pandemic, but by another crisis, is something about sea level rise. So I could send you guys, um, I've been doing these uh, paintings using the same technique of, uh, based on photographs of things that I've taken that are underwater. So if you walk along the edge of where I used to live, for example, on Bay Harbor Island, you see things that are discarded and they're just sitting underwater, but they have a really spooky feel to them. So like a bicycle or a, a card table or things like that. So I've taken all kinds of pictures and I have a series I'm doing on that. And the other series that I'm doing, which is a little weird, uh, there's a word called orts, O-R-T-S, and it means crumbs or scraps or you know leftover from dinner. And so I've been taking pictures of plates after people have finished eating. And you can see the smears from whatever sauce was on whatever they're eating. And also we do a lot of roasted vegetables here where we, um, um, where we uh, uh, put like uh, broccoli florets, broccoli florets uh, that we toss with olive oil and salt and pepper and maybe some other stuff. And then we put it on a, uh, a cookie sheet, use parchment, uh, instead of tin foil, 
and and uh, so you, you just put them in a, a high temperature oven for 10 minutes and they're really they caramelize and they're really fabulous but they leave these images on the parchment so i've been taking pictures of the parchment which i'm making the paintings but i'm also going to include the parchment as a collage element in the, in the paintings so that that's is, another that is so tip. interesting and unique i mean how did you even were you just sitting at the dinner table after dinner and you just noticed these smears and you decided interesting let me keep observing let me take pictures <laughs> that's exactly it so you know you know when you talk about what does it mean to be an artist and i guess this isn't limited artist but you see something and it captures your imagination and it it, it, it one of the questions i've kind of learned to ask everybody that I interview is what's been the role of serendipity in your career what's been the role of luck and as an artist, I know when you're working on a canvas and all of a sudden you make a mistake and there's a mark there that you didn't intend to make, but you look at it and you say, wow, that's kind of interesting. That's more interesting than what I was gonna do. Let me see where that goes. And so you start working with that, uh, that element that you created serendipitously. Um, there was a big story in the New York Times about the role of serendipity in art. and. Uh, that's what inspired me to, to think that way. So that's what happened. We, we actually had, had uh, believe it or not, from scratch cooked uh, char-grilled octopus. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we, there was some, there was a sauce to it and there was uh, markings on the plate and you could even see some tentacle, you know, some suction cup things. And, and that's what got me going. That's super interesting. You have so many projects going on at once. Do you, have you found that with uh, the whole pandemic and COVID, you have found you have more time to work on your art, or do you think that it's just um, that just being cooped in like at home has like hindered your productivity? Because that's a big thing now. And to add to that, really quick as well, um, do you find yourself more on social media with your art as well, since you have kind of more time to dedicate to that and to share so the magazine takes up a lot of time and speech show takes up a lot of time and in the beginning uh, when i started the magazine in 2015 i didn't know how to use i didn't know how to use wordpress to create the website um, and i didn't know how to use adobe indesign to create the e-magazine and so i had people uh, that worked for the university that helped me with all that stuff and I taught myself how to use all those programs And now I'm in a place where I could do the whole thing myself without any help But along the way I thought this would be an interesting course in the journalism school to have students working on the magazine they both have uh, experiential learning how to act, take real content uh, real in my mind interesting content and convert it into stuff that we publish on the website and in the e-magazine. So I started a course. This doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. Like it's going to be our situation for a while. For the next couple of years. I thought, I thought you meant the interview. No, no, no. <laughs> well, the pandemic, sorry. My bad. The pandemic doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. Um, so how do, you, how do you see the art community changing, adapting, um, being affected 
What do you, what do yeah. you envision? So uh, that's a really interesting question. And I'm glad that you have the, the reality perspective that this isn't going to end anytime soon. I literally just interviewed um, Tyler Emerson Dorsch, who is a co-owner of Emerson Dorsch Gallery in, uh, in Little Haiti. And we talked about the question that you asked, you know, what's your strategy moving forward? Um, and so just from the perspective of, of viewing art, there's um, the possibility right now that you can go and make make uh, a, uh, an appointment in a gallery, but there won't be other people, you know, there won't be openings. There won't be that buzz you get from an opening. It's just somebody um, being able to go on their own and, and go into the space and look at the art. Um, interestingly- Have you seen, have you experienced any, um, have you experienced artists like more um, in the in this contemporary situation that we're in, have you seen anything uh, creative or initiative like um, that artists are doing to stay afloat and to stay like not I don't, I don't want to say relevant, but to say to stay in um, relevant to stay you know um, popular in this you know situation where the there's no galleries that are open, museums are closed, there's no art fairs, et cetera. Yeah, and for the and those artists as well that are still kind of establishing themselves and trying to make a name for yeah, themselves. Yeah, new, new artists. You know, I, I, in my mind, uh, it's, an art career is a very strange thing. So I remember the first time I sold a work to a museum, and we had a party and there was champagne. I was living in Provincetown. And this older art artist comes up to me and he says, I, I just want you to keep in mind that art schools graduate 250,000 people a year. And that five years later, less than 1% are still working at it. And part of that is because you go from um, learning your art in situations where people are setting up kind of assignments or projects for you. When you're looking at a blank canvas and you're thinking, okay, what am I gonna do now? And also you have to have the space to do the work and, and to store the work. So, and, and the other part of that is I've known artists that one, one, one month they're on the cover of three different magazines and then there's, their prices go way up because of that. And then 10 years later, they can barely sell anything. So it's a very uh, less than 1% of artists. Um, and I'm, I'm making this up, so I'm not quite sure that's true, but are able to live off their art. And they uh, or certainly feel like they've guaranteed themselves a place uh, in history. Um, as one artist said to me years ago, he said, am I going to agonize over whether, well, he said it a different way. He said, a, when a uh, professor is giving a lecture about a particular art movement, he's got X number of slides that he can show in two hours. Am I going to agonize over whether or not I'm going to fit into a slide tray? Uh, you know, he's just going to go about doing his work. And so 
a huge proportion of, of, of artists um, don't get much recognition and don't have many people buy their art. I had a girlfriend at one point who was a pretty good artist and she could, she never sold anything. And so she became a writer. Um, so I think the fact that we've been fallow for six to nine months, whatever it's been, is kind of a blip on the career path of, of most artists. It'll go away at some point. It may, it may be, you know, anybody who thought they were going to have a, a really important show during this period, that's a big, a big blow. But um, for most people, you know, they'll, or, or art is something that um, you don't make it to get rich. You make it because you have to, you know, because it's your calling and that's what you do. And, and you don't really have a choice in the matter. That's, that's really good. A little scary for me because uh, I'm a fine arts major. So when you said 1%, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> very scary. But, um, yeah, it was, it's very I, – I agree with you. I think that what you said about um, that this, this – little moment is just going to be like very insignificant in somebody's career i think that was the last question i have do you have anything to, to add natalie Cecilia? do you have anything yeah well i don't think we t touched on it but um was your move to miami intentional for your art career or was it something completely like unplanned unexpected so, so, here, so here's what happened. Uh, I started coming here when I was seven years old. <laughs> okay. For two weeks a year with my parents. And by the time I got to 18, I had come down with some high school buddies to celebrate uh, the end of high school. And uh, I hated Miami. And I said, I'm never coming back here. So, because I thought it was so shallow and so whatever. So, um, fast forward to, uh, I guess, the 1990s. And um, we started, we visited a friend of ours and moved here from New York. And we got in the habit for one of our, our son's um, school breaks. And when he was in K through 12, we would come down and stay with her on Bay Harbor Island for uh, probably 10 days. And that's when the art scene started to explode here. And we were really, uh, you know, mesmerized by it and got more interested. And she said back then, which was 2001, she said, um, you know, you should really look around on Bay Harbor Island because the values are really good right now. And we found a wonderful place like that and, and bought it. And, um, and so then we started, uh, once our son went to college, we started coming here um, for six months a year and then being in Provincetown the other six months. And one year we were driving back to Provincetown and we started expanding the amount of time we spend here because the Cape in uh, in the late spring is pretty, can be really miserable. So you could be there in May and it's cold and dreary. And um, 
So we started driving back one year in May, and my wife said, so why are we going back? <laughs> and, and we had three days to think about it uh, as we drove back to Provincetown. And uh, we decided that we'd move here year-round. And we sold it. so we got up there, we put our house in the market and sold it. And moved here year-round in 2012. That was a pretty quick uh, decision. Three days. Well, it, it was, was probably in the it, back of your head, though, already for a while. Well, part of it was, you know, I've been doing the same thing for 50 years mm-hmm. of, you know, with the same people. And uh, now, of course, I miss them more than I did that day that we made the decision. But, um, but we, we still go back there, um, uh, you know, once a year. Usually, this is the, as I said, this is the first time in 50 years that we won't be there. But thank you so much for joining us and answering our questions, taking the time out of your day to... Uh, to come and have this Zoom with us. And, you, you know, I feel like you're my best friend, so uh, <laughs> I, I'm really sad to hang up on this call. This concludes Exploring Art Podcast. Subscribe to Exploring Art Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Please join us soon, and remember to stay curious. Stay curious.